Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Let's open to the book of John, the fourth gospel, the gospel according to John, and we'll open to chapter 10. Our Bible reading this evening will be from verses 22 through 30. So that's John chapter 10 from verses 22 through 30. Let's read. I'll be reading from the ESV version. John chapter 10, from verse 22. At the time, at that time, the feast, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works I, that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Amen. This is the Lord's words. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord it remains forever. Amen. The last time we were in the gospel according to John was a few weeks ago and we were also in this same chapter. But if you remember back then, I said I was going to bring to a completion a section of that chapter from verses 1 through 21, that glorious chapter that is headed in your Bibles, most of our Bibles as the Good Shepherd, the chapter of the Good Shepherd. There Jesus opens his glorious mouth and articulates truths that are eternal and glorious and gracious and loving and kind. Truths that those who belong to him ought to melt before, ought to move our soul, ought to move us to worship as we contemplate and meditate upon the truths of our Lord. The fact that he is God eternal, the eternal son would come into this world with a purpose in mind. And that purpose is that he would lay down his life for his sheep. To call his sheep, to rescue his sheep, to bring them into green pastures, to lead them. To give them spiritual food. In a word, give them safety and security and everything that comes with knowing God through Christ Jesus. But as I said, in a word, to give them life and life abundantly. Of course, that privilege of life that he bestows, that life that he gives to his sheep will come at a very high price. It comes at a high price to be, to be entered into the sheepfold of God, but, but that price is not paid by the sheep. Rather, the expense is paid in full by the shepherd himself, the purchase price being his own blood. Last week I spoke to you about analogies and where analogies and types and shadows break down and there is a point where the analogy of the good shepherd breaks down. 
There's a point where those who are surrounding Christ and listening to his words, listening to him making an analogy or figures of speech where he derives from an understanding of the modern day people about what a shepherd is. There's a point where it breaks down because because the good shepherd listening to Christ he recognizes, yes, indeed, the good shepherd ought to be willing to lay down his life for his sheep. If a predator or a danger comes towards these little furry ones, he ought to be willing to risk life and limb on their behalf. However, if the danger lurks, if the predator comes, the goal is to protect the sheep and protect one's own self also. The goal is to stay in shape and to have some sort of weapon, a staff, a stick, whatever it takes to fend off the enemy, but at the same time protect the sheep and also protect his own life. And that's where the analogy breaks down. And I'd spoken to you about it a few weeks ago. Because not only is the good shepherd spoken of in the verses in John chapter 10 from verses 1 through 19, a shepherd who is willing to lay down his life. No, it is a requirement that this good shepherd lay down his life for his sheep because there is no other way that his sheep could be bestowed with the life, that abundant life, the life of knowing God the Father through God the Son. There is no other way apart from him laying down his life as a substitute, vicarious substitute for his sheep. Well, that's why he came to lay down his life and then to take it up again. Death does not have the final say. He's the resurrected Savior. And he is alive and well leading his sheep every single moment of every single day. The last time we were here, we considered the response of the Jews from verses 19 through 21. And as always, Jesus speaks. When Jesus speaks, there's division amongst the people. It's incredible to see that his gracious words were stripping with grace. Very straightforward, very clear, yet very few take to heart. Very few end up believing in the Lord. And it's not because he didn't have the, or he lacked the power of persuasion. No one spoke like the Lord. The scribes and the Pharisees didn't speak with such authority that the people could recognize he speaks with authority, he speaks with grace, he speaks with great understanding, greater understanding than anyone we have ever seen or heard. He speaks plainly, he speaks directly. But it's not a matter of the words simply that came out of his mouth for why people don't believe. But rather, from verse 22 onwards, it gives us the real, ultimate reason why many, most, stay in darkness. Why most reject the Good Shepherd. Why most say no to the only light of the world. And it has nothing to do with the temporal rather all to do with the eternal decree of God before the foundation of the world. The doctrine of election, beloved, is a sobering reality. And many in our day find it abhorrent, unfortunately. Many find it distasteful. But let me tell you this, irrespective of man's disposition, towards what is written in Scripture, towards the Word of God. Irrespective of man's disposition, truth is truth. And it's truth because it's rooted in the one who is true. There is no truth apart from God. And if God has opened his mouth and revealed to his people through inerrant Scripture, then it is truth. And we stand upon that truth. It's objective because it's found in God. Although many hear the gracious words of our Lord, only some will come to recognize his voice and believe. And those who recognize his voice do so not because of the persuasive teaching, but rather because they were chosen before the foundation of the world. Before life began for the sheep in the womb, some were decreed to share the life in Christ, whilst others were not. 
By God's grace, we'll spend the next two Lord's days in the verses that are before us from verses 22 through 30. We'll unpack those verses at least the next two Lord's days. And brothers and sisters, although the the theme that is before us in the verses I've just read uh, is a theme of the shepherd and the sheep, which is the theme that comes through the first 21 verses, I want us to realize that this is a new section. It it opens up a a, a new section from verses 22 and moving forward. forward Because the Apostle John gives us a a timestamp. He actually does that quite a few times throughout the gospel according to John. And here we have a timestamp to inform us of what is taking place and when it's taking place. He says here, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So Christ is in Jerusalem. Now, in the previous portion, he's been in Jerusalem. So that hasn't changed. He's in the temple precinct, in the temple, the second temple there in, in Jerusalem. But the difference really is that some time has passed, several months in fact. The context that began in John chapter 7, if you remember when Jesus came down from Galilee, not with the Galilean caravan, but he came on his own discreetly around about halfway through the Feast of Booths back in chapter 7, carried through to about chapter 8. And that was around the context of the Feast of Booths or otherwise known as the Feast of Tabernacles. That took place in the autumn, our September, October, around that sort of time. And the text suggests, or seems to suggest at least, that the contents of chapter 9, where Jesus heals the man who was born blind, took place not very far out from chapter 7 and 8. It feels like there's a a flow to the text of the Apostle John that brings us from chapter 7 and 8. Chapter 7 begins halfway through the Feast of Tabernacles. Chapter 8 takes us towards the end of the the eight-day Feast of the Tabernacles. And chapter 9 seems to flow from it. But if you remember, when I said that chapter 9, when we began chapter 9, I said to you that it's very unlikely it took place immediately after the ending of chapter 8 because of the context. Right at the end of chapter 8, Jesus declares that before Abraham was, I I am. And what happened? The Jews were ropeable. They took up stones to stone him. And it says that Jesus hid himself from them. So I think unlikely in that moment that he hid himself from them and then immediately went out in the streets and began to heal people. So it's likely that it's a day, two, three, maybe a week or two later, but it suggests that the text is not far out from the Feast of Tabernacles and that flows through to the first portion of chapter 10 also. Because chapter 9 continues and there's no break. If you remember, we went from 9 to chapter 10. It was the same audience, essentially, that carried through. But here we have a break. Here we have the Apostle John telling us that it is the feast of dedication that is in view. Not the feast of tabernacles, which took place a few months earlier, but the feast of dedication that is in view from 22 onwards. Now, if you're tempted at, attempted at this point to flick through back into your Old Testament Bibles and go back to a, a passage in the Old Testament that describes and articulates the feast, like Leviticus chapter 23, to brush up on some of the details of this feast, well, let me, let me save you the effort. You're not going to find anything in the Old Testament that speaks to this feast. Because this feast wasn't commanded by God. The Apostle John tells us about it, but this feast, the Feast of Dedication, was not actually commanded by God in the Old Testament. And the reason for that is because this feast was rooted, its origin is rooted in the intertestamental period. That is, from the writing of the last prophet, which is the prophet of Malachi, about 400 years before Christ, to the birth of Christ. That period is the intertestamental period. And in there somewhere, and being more precise, around the 170 BC through to 160, in that bracket there, is where this feast is actually rooted. Let's do some history, very briefly. This may help us. I think it's good to brush up. So far, thus far, we, we've been working through the book of Joshua. We've worked through, uh, in our corporate readings, we've gone through the first five books of the Bible. So we've seen the covenant established. We've seen the promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We've seen them grow as a, as a people. And then we've seen God's providence and his provisions upon them. He's now finally, we've seen, he's given them the inheritance of the, of the land. And now they've settled in, as our brother said earlier in the text in Joshua chapter 21, that is none of God's promises that have fallen to the ground. All have been fulfilled. God has 
fulfilled his promises to these people, Joshua. But after Joshua comes, Judges, the people have yet to have a king. In the book of Judges, the Lord sends judges as deliverers for the people of Israel because they rebel against God. They keep rebelling and sinning against God and God brings the nations to punish these people. And when they cry out, the Lord sends them a deliverer, a judge to rescue the people. And the book of Judges spans for about 400 odd years. And then the people of Israel cry out for a king. We want to be like our neighbors. We want to be like the pagan neighbors. We want a king to lead us into battle like the neighbors' kings lead them into battle. And of course, Samuel takes offense, but God says, don't take offense. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Yahweh is their king. And that's a rejection of Yahweh. But you know what? The Lord had already spoken to Moses on the other side of the Jordan. He said, when you enter the land, the people are going to call for a king. Give them a king. Give them a king. And so Samuel gives them a king. And the Lord said, before you do, warn them about what the king will do. He warns them. The people say, we, we, we don't care about the warnings. Just give us the king. So he gives them a king. Saul, the first king. You remember Saul. He didn't work out that well. Head and shoulders above the, the rest. The people's choice. People were so happy with Saul, but he wasn't after God's own heart. God then chooses a king after his own heart. King David, and from that point on, we have the Davidic dynasty. That the king will now be through the line of David, son of Judah, the tribe of Judah, I should say. And then what we have is we have the golden age for the people of Israel. That is a united kingdom. All the land was united under King David. God gave them peace. And then after King David was his son, Solomon, and there was a united kingdom under Solomon. But then the Lord said, judgment has come kingdom is going to be split in two. There's going to be a northern kingdom. There's going to be a, a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom known as Israel or Ephraim. And there's going to be a southern kingdom known as the, the region or the kingdom of Judah. But both break covenant with God. Both kingdoms. The northern kingdom first to see judgment. In fact, every king... There's, there's separate kings. The northern kingdom is, is ruled by a king. The, the southern kingdom is ruled by a king. But it's the Davidic, the Davidic line is in the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. Not a single king in the north was a righteous king, the Bible says. So come 722 BC, the Lord says, enough's enough. Judgment's come. You've broken covenant with me. And he sends in the Assyrians, who are then the empire, the, the worldwide super empire, to come and to overtake the northern kingdom. And they do. And many die in the northern kingdom. Many are taken out. And many of the pagan nations are brought in. People from the pagan nations to intermix with the people in the north. And they lost their identity as a people and never to be a people again. But then you fast forward a little and you have the southern kingdom doing much of the similar things, rejecting the Lord. And so the Lord sends judgment upon the, the kingdom of Judah. But he does it not through the Assyrians, but now he does it through the new supernatural superpower of the day, the empire, which is the Babylonians, head by Nebuchadnezzar, then a general who becomes king. He comes in and he, he takes over. Many die, starting from 605 to 597 and 586 BC. There's three different deportations. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he wreaks havoc upon the people of Judah. And finally, in 586, the temple is completely destroyed. A whole heap of people then taken into exile and taken over into Babylon, as God had promised. But there is a difference to the southern kingdom the Lord had promised through the prophet Jeremiah that 70 years will pass and in 70 years time the exile you will come to an end and you will come back to the land no such promise to the northern kingdom but there was a promise to the southern kingdom because God made a promise with David so the southern kingdom, then they, they, all, they all come back and, and under the, the decree of Cyrus. And, they, and, and one of the first order of services is to rebuild the temple. Remember, the Solomon temple was burnt to a crisp in 586 BC. So under Zerubbabel, they rebuild the temple. It takes there's some delays, but it gets done eventually. But you know what? Although the people of the southern kingdom did come back. Not all of them, only a small portion, maybe 50,000 at, uh, at first. A lot more had gone out. But although they had come back, they never really 
had the autonomy that they once enjoyed. Because they always had a governance of a pagan nation. There's always a, a nation that was, that was governing over them. There, there was periods of time where they had the, a little bit of autonomy to, to worship and, and, and to enjoy the culture that they had and to do things as they would like. But they, they, had, a, they had a nation looking over them, whether it was the, the Medes or the Persians or the Greeks or the time of Christ. When we're, when we're speaking here in the, in the New Testament, it was what? What was the kingdom in the time of Christ? It was the, it was, it was the, the Romans. They, they come in and they, there was a oppression over them. But more so, the, the Feast of Dedication speaks to a particular people, to a particular um, kingdom, and that was the, the Greek kingdom. You remember Alexander the Great. I think that's a name that's familiar to all our ears. About 330 years before Christ. Great conquering king, this guy. Incredible. A, a, a mammoth figure in, in, in history. And he conquered most of the known world back then, but he died as a young man. And when he did die, he left a mess behind. He had four generals. He had generals who then succeeded him, but they didn't get along. He had a bit of unity when he was around. They heard him. He had many generals, but the four main generals, they did not get along. And they began to fight over regions and so forth. And before long, it was the region of the Seleucids who took governance over the region of Judah, that's the region, of Jerusalem, that's where the temple is. But it's one person in particular that came from the Seleucid line, a ruler in particular that is of interest, and that is, his name is Antichus, or Antichios. I can't pronounce it. Let's call him Antiochus, that's the word, Antiochus. Some will call him Antiochus, Antiochus IV. Antiochus the fourth was a pomp, proud man. He was a, a ruthless man. Unlike his father, Antiochus the third, who was a diplomatic, who was tolerant of the Jews and gave them the freedom to actually worship God as they, they wanted to worship under his governance. Antiochus the fourth was a, a ruthless man who hated the Jews. His goal and agenda was to completely Hellenize the regions that are under him. That is to say, he wanted to make them, he wanted to blur and remove all the distinctions between Jew and Gentile. He wanted them all to be like the Greeks. So anything that stood out, anything that made the Jews unique, he wanted that gone and gone completely. The Jews were no longer allowed to circumcise their sons. The covenant sign was no longer allowed to be administered. In fact, it was punishable by death. They were no longer allowed to have any of the scripture. If he found scripture with the Jews, he would kill them also. He, he was an atrocious leader, very ruthless. He burnt down their cities. He tore down their houses. He pillaged their goods. He was a very ruthless man. Very ruthless indeed. And anyone who opposes him was met with, with death. But him he did the unthinkable. Then he began to attack the temple. The temple which was the root of the joy and the pride of the Jews, he began to to set his eyes upon it. Now, earlier he'd made the Jews sacrifice to pagan idols. He made them do that against their will. And even when he found that they were forbidden to eat pig, he made many and forced many among his region to eat pig. But then when he entered the temple, this man, Antichus IV, who's given himself a nickname, Epiphanes, and some of you know what that nickname means, God manifest. He's a proud, proud man. Although he deemed himself to be some form of deity, he, he still recognized the, the great God Zeus, and he entered the temple in Jerusalem and built an altar an altar to Zeus, and he sacrificed upon that altar. He sacrificed pig upon the altar in the temple of Yahweh. And that absolutely outraged the Jews. So they banded together and went up in arms, led by a man by, by the name of um, Judas Maccabees, they fought and fought and fought and finally 
they took back Jerusalem. They took back the temple. They removed the desecration and the defilement and the blasphemous things from within the temple and they reconsecrated the temple. They cleansed it and they purified it and they, they rededicated the temple to Yahweh. And there was a feast. A feast that lasted eight days straight where the people were dancing and singing and playing musical instruments and sacrificing to Yahweh in their immense joy that the temple, the symbol of the manifest presence of God, the symbol of where God meets with man, it's being restored. And so from that day on, it was decreed that every year during this time in the winter that there would be an eight-day celebration. An eight-day celebration and that celebration would be called the Feast of Dedication. And this is, what we, this is what we see before us now. In the time of the Feast of Dedication. So the events that take place from verse 22 onwards are at this time. The, the Jews' joy is at a high level. They've been rejoicing. They've been enjoying this feast. They've been reminded of the deliverance they enjoyed. They're reminded once again, as they are in the temple precinct, of, of this great temple and what it stands for. And then you, have, then you have what goes on between Jesus and the Jews that takes place from verse 22 onwards. And then, then we're told in verse 24, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long? How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Seems like a pretty fair question at first. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Tell us if you are. We're sincerely asking Jesus that you would tell us if you're the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for centuries, finally the anointed one of God, if you are him, Jesus, please tell us if you're the Messiah, if you are the Christ, so that we would follow you. Do you think that was the angle they're taking? Well, it's impossible to know their intentions because we don't know their hearts. But have any of the questions from the religious leaders towards our Lord been sincere so far? What's been their general trend so far from from the religious people, the the Jews, as the Apostle John calls them, in regards to the words that Jesus has spoken thus far? Have they been genuine to know more, to seek truth? Or have they an agenda? Have they already made their mind? Are they trying to trap our Lord? Do they mean him well towards Christ? Is there a possibility that they're going to bend their knee to him and follow after Jesus? Or are they more concerned to eliminate our Lord? What has happened thus far? Have they not picked up stones to stone him already, but unsuccessfully? Why? Because Jesus' time, his hour had not yet come. Is this any different? Have they had a change of heart? Will it actually make a difference in their belief if Jesus does actually openly say, I am Messiah? Or are they only seeking a, a, some form of justification to do what they want to do and put him away once and for all? As I said, we don't know their intentions. But thus far from what we've seen, they have been sinister. And I think here in the grammar of the text, I think the interpreters have interpreted it in a, in a particular way, but I, I do see I do see within the text that there's a, a vibe, a negative vibe coming from even how they speak and even how John describes the passage for us. Look down at verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, the Jews gathered around him and said to him, it, it's interesting that, that the, the word gathered around him in the original, we, we know the, the theme, like throughout the, the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, how many times do we hear that the, the people and the crowds gathered around Christ to hear him preach? Everywhere he went, he, he amassed a, a following, a, a crowd, and they gathered around him. But the Apostle John doesn't use the common word, the regular word for gathering around, the one that is used over 60 times, or at least um, up to 60 times, 59 or 60 thereabouts, times in the New Testament. Rather, he uses a different word, one that's only used for 
four other times. Only four other times. And every time that word is used, it does connote a negative connotation. And in fact, every time, death is in view. Every time. It's a word that can be translated and people encircled or surrounded him or or even besieged him. Three of those times that I mentioned, three of the four other times that I mentioned, it describes a stance of of an army surrounding a city or a people with the intention of advancing and destroying and bringing to death everyone that they have surrounded. Sounds to me like the apostles hinting at the intention of the Jews by using that language. That they've surrounded our Lord, not sincerely to ask a legitimate question, give us some more clarity. Give us some more clarity. I think the I think how we read it in our Bibles gives them the benefit of the doubt, but I, I'm leaning towards them besieging our Lord and declaring war against him in their words. They're not, they want nothing more than to destroy him at this stage. We know that already. They want nothing more than to bury him at this stage. And they've tried. I think the negative attitude continues because in the next words, it says here, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Tell us plainly. Jesus, we're on edge. Jesus, tell us. If you are the Christ, just tell us in as many words. Just say to us, I am Messiah. I am Christ. Please, Jesus, tell us and and get us out of our misery. We just want to know. Maybe that was their attitude. But literally, the words are, how long will you keep the weight or this weight upon our shoulders? How long are you going to continue having or giving or putting this weight upon our shoulders? So so when the, the, the words in the ESV says that it's it's don't keep us in tell us, Lord, don't keep us in suspense, that would be a, a good translation if we're looking at the possible positive aspects. But another way it could be translated, literally, is how long, Jesus, how long will you continue to annoy us? That weight upon the shoulders could be a burden, could put someone into suspense, or it could be just an annoyance that they want to get off their own shoulders. We're done with these metaphors. We're done with the figure of speeches. We're done with the parables. Jesus, we're done with these illusions. We're done with them all. Tell us already. Tell us already. Are you or are you not? Speak the words, Jesus. Tell us in as many words if you are the Christ. Doesn't sound to me like they all they need at this point is just those three words. I am Messiah. In order for them to believe. Beloved brothers and sisters, there is some conjecture in what I've just said, because there's two ways of seeing this, but let me ask you, have they believed in the other words of Christ? Have they acted in faith upon the words that he has spoken clearly and plainly and straightforwardly? And confidently, have they acted upon faith on those? And yet just over here in the matter of his identity, all they need is some clarity. The question is, how have they acted? What has their attitude been towards everything else that Jesus has spoken? Our Lord has always known. He knows what's inside the heart of man. He knows it's not a matter of what words are used. It's a matter of spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness. The fact is that the people that are before him have no spiritual life and therefore have no faith. Even if he were to expose the truth in black and white, even if Jesus was to stand there and say, I am Messiah, left to the intellect of the listener, even the most religious and the most astute listener will always misunderstand the things that require the Spirit of God to discern. Even the best of them. You mean I need to go back into my mother's womb? 
the very, 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 very best of them. Speaking plainly would not make a difference in this context because they simply don't believe. And Jesus will go on to say, because you are not my, my sheep. We'll get into that next week, Lord willing, because that will explain and bring clarity to everything I'm saying. Brothers and sisters, I'm sure you've come across people in your evangelism that have asked you certain questions and sought certain clarities and even said to you, why don't we find this in the Bible? And why didn't Jesus say this or that? Or why didn't you do it this way? And I, one example I can give you is when we're speaking to our, our Muslim friends on more than one occasion, you know that the, the, the Muslims don't believe in the, in the, in the trinity that, that would say that we are tri-theists. We have three gods, separate gods. They don't understand the, the triune, the triune God. They certainly don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Same in, in essence and being with God. They don't, they don't believe that. So in, in the denial of the deity of Christ, it's a denial of the deity of Christ, the apologetic retort, one of them is at least, Show me one place in the Bible. Show me just one place in the Bible where Jesus says, in as many words, I am God. Show me one place. I don't want to hear any other words or allusions. I don't want you to point to places where you think he's saying that. I want to hear where he says, I am God. It sounds fair enough at first when you think about it. That's all they're looking for, right? But for the question to be sincere, one would have to conclude one would have to conclude that Jesus' word is the standard of truth. In other words, if, if, if what they're saying is this, show me one place in the word of God where it says Jesus is God, then there are two things they need to conclude, or you need to conclude. There need to be two presuppositions. One is that the word of God is truth, right? Old and new. Because if it says that, then the implication is you must believe it. And the other is if Jesus spoke it and Jesus said it, then we need to we need to believe it. Otherwise, the challenge is meaningless. Why would they say, tell us, show us one place where Jesus says, he is God. It'd be meaningless. It'd be insincere at best. So if I can show you one place in the scripture where Jesus says, I am God, will you believe? Will you fall on your knees and worship him as God? Would you acknowledge every single word he says? Will you give yourself over completely to his kingship? Well, if the answer is, well, no, then why are we talking? This is not a sincere argument, question. However, some who have read the word know, you're not going to come back because I've read it. You're not going to come back where Jesus says, I am God. Yes, I'll take you up on that challenge. Wonderful. So you've taken me up on the challenge in that you acknowledge the word, the, the, the scripture is the word of God. And you acknowledge that the words that came out of Jesus' mouth are truth, that he's a proclaimer of truth. Wonderful. We'll go there next. Let me take you somewhere else where Jesus has spoken. Since you are now saying that what Jesus says you will acknowledge and believe, let me take you somewhere else. And let me take you to the passage where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's pretty plain and straightforward, coming out of the same mouth that you're declaring is true. And it's the same Savior that says, unless you believe that I am here, you will die in your sins. Now will you believe? Now will you trust? Now will you give yourself over in repentance to this Jesus since you have issued a challenge? We'll go back to Jesus is God. But will you believe his other words? We'll go back to whether Jesus says in plain words, I am Christ, I am Messiah. But what have you done with his other words? What have you done with the proclamation of the words of the Son of God? That's telling, beloved. Because it's easy to put challenges out there. It's easy to say, why didn't God do it this way? Why doesn't he meet my terms? Why doesn't he do things according to my criteria? No, the word of God is sufficient. Every word that's come out of the mouth of the Lord is sufficient. It is clear. It is perspicuous. It is the clarity of the scripture is that God has spoken through his word. And he's made the path of salvation so clear that anyone can see that salvation comes only through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, whether you believe it or not is another story. But it's true. And he has spoken. He's proclaimed it. The question is, the question is, will you, will you believe? And Jesus is answering that question. He knows 
even if he was to speak plainly, it's not going to change their hearts. It's not going to change their hearts. Because the only one who can bring about salvation is God himself. Salvation is of the Lord. No matter how much truths are uttered, if the Holy Spirit doesn't carry those truths and press them into the heart of a man or a woman, there is no salvation. No matter how much truth is proclaimed, if the gospel is taught and, and proclaimed and the word of God is, is, is unpacked faithfully, unless the Father draws unto the Son, unless the Father teaches the heart of a man to recognize his Son by his Holy Spirit, to see that this Jesus is the only door unto salvation, the only one who, who can receive unto the sheepfold of God, the only good shepherd who can lead God's people into righteousness, unless one is, is moved by the hand of God, no matter how many stipulations, no matter how many criteria, no matter how well you can articulate yourself and say, do all these things, tick all these boxes, and I might believe you will not believe because God needs to move and no man can move God. He moves as he pleases, when he pleases. And when it comes down to salvation, he moves salvifically to the sheep of Christ. When God moves and gives faith, opens eyes to see, removes from the darkness and the blindness, it is only those who have been elected, chosen in his Son, from eternity past. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And when they come to me, I will in no ways cast them out. He's the one who raises them up on the last day. He's a perfect Savior. The salvation of every one of the sheep is a, it's a triune effort. Our words, beloved, cannot accomplish this. You and I are being called to be faithful, not to meet people's challenges and bend over backwards and try to, try to proclaim the gospel of Christ. The word of God is sufficient. The gospel is sufficient. Christ spoke all that he needed to speak to proclaim who he is. The fact on the other end that they didn't receive him but they rejected him is because they cling to their sin. When I say they, we're talking specifically about the Jews here and everyone who's still in Adam in their sin and in darkness and every one of us before we came to know him salvifically. Every one of us were truly a sheep of God. Every one of us who are truly led by the good shepherd, every one of us who have come to know the truth has been drawn by the Father, not by our own efforts but by His grace and by His grace, by His grace alone. But if the Jews require just a simple identity check, if they just simply want Jesus to confirm His identity, if they're being sincere and they're saying, just tell us, just tell us if you are the Messiah and we'll believe Beloved, he's done it multiple times. He's done it so many times. And Jesus says so. I have told you. But you're deaf to hear. He also says, I, I have shown you, but you are blind to see. Listen to what his answer was. He says, Jesus answered them, this is verse 25, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. You hear my voice, but you don't recognize it. You see me and you see the works that I'm doing, but you don't know who I am. I told you, and you do not Believe. You realize Jesus says, I told you, and you do not believe. And then he says, the works I do in my Father's name, and you do not believe. There's two things. One, that he has spoken, and the other, that he's shown them through the works that the Father has given him. I told you first, and you do not believe. Now think with me about all the truths that he's spoken to them already about who he is. 
All the truths that would identify him so clearly and so plainly about who he is, and still they have not believed. You know, it's almost like, if you remember back in John chapter 6, when Jesus was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and and, and the Galileans and the, the people from Capernaum walked over the sea, and, and there was a multitude, 5,000 men in total, not including women and children. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Like, this is a grand, 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 grand miracle. There was probably 15,000, 20,000 people who witnessed the glorious sign that Jesus had performed. On the very next day, the crowd had come back over. Jesus wasn't there, so they'd come back over to the western side of the Sea of Galilee, saw him there in the, in the synagogue in Capernaum. And it's interesting what they say to him. Jesus is confronting them because they don't believe. And then they say, what sign will you give us in order for us to believe? Always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of truth. Think about what Jesus, at least what Jesus said already. In John chapter 5 to the Jews, now get ready, this is going to be a bit of a, I don't know, I can't even think of the word, but I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture for you rather than explain it. Let me just read to you some of what Jesus has already said to these Jews in Jerusalem, not in Galilee, not in another place, not Capernaum, not, not, not you know, in Decapolis, in Jerusalem. In John chapter 5, 19, my father is working until now and I am working. Not the father. The Jews would never say my father. My father is working. Verse 17, for whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. I do the work of God. For as the father raises the dead and gives life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. Verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So far, it's pretty clear. Verse 39, you search the scripture. I mentioned this only the other week. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. A few verses later, verse 46. For if you believed Moses, we are disciples of Moses, that's their boast, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Verse 47. But if you do not believe his writings, that is Moses' writings, how will you believe my words? The scripture speaks about me. In chapter 7, remember, chapter 6, Galilean. Chapter 7, we're coming back to Jerusalem. Chapter 7, we got here, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, the fulfillment of the word of God, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Next chapter, chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know truth, and the truth will set you free. Verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. They're massive truth claims. Verse 42. If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. Are you the anointed one of God? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the one that the Father has sent? I came from the Father. Here I am. Verse 56 of John chapter 8. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was, and was glad. Abraham's hope. Abraham's hope was in this Jesus. And finally, verse 56. Finally, in, verse eight, in chapter 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
And in the discourse of the Good Shepherd here in John chapter 8, how clear does our Lord make it that he is the Good Shepherd, the same Good Shepherd that was prophesied when? Back in the Old Testament. You remember Ezekiel 34 points towards a good shepherd to come, to heal their wounds, to gather the people, to rescue them from the, the, the crooked. And then that good shepherd will also be the son of who? The son of David. The son of David. Not clear enough? All, all, all that Jesus had spoken, not clear enough. The fact that he fulfilled this scripture and, and all the scripture was pointing to the, to this Christ to come and the fulfillment that is found in Jesus' words were, were perfectly consistent in, with the, the rest of God's words. It's perfectly true. No one could pin a single sin, a single lie on this Jesus. Not a word did he say that was out of place. Not one word. Is that not enough? I've told you, but you do not believe. But then he goes on. I told you, and you do not believe. Then he says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Not only my words and my claims, but also my, my works. Countless healings they would have witnessed. Th- think about what we know. Think about the healing of the invalid man of almost four decades there at the pool of Bethesda. He's lame. 38 years this man was crippled. And Jesus says, rise. And he rises. And they wanted Jesus' head over it because it was performed on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath. Let's bring it a little bit closer to home. Chapter 9. You remember in chapter 9 that miracle that took place where Jesus brought sight to the man Born blind, his eyes had never seen the light of day. A creation of sight. Who, who can do this? Who can perform these, these works? Who, who's able to have the power to perform these absolute wonders and these, these miracles? Even Nicodemus came to Christ at night. You remember when Nicodemus came, you remember the first words he spoke to Jesus, what he said? The reason really why he did come? Rabbi, he says, we know that you are a teacher from God. We know that God has sent you. We know your words. If you're a teacher of God, that means you open your mouth on behalf of God. We know that you are sanctioned by God. You speak on behalf of God. You are sent by God. Nicodemus, how do you know? Then he says, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Since no one can do the signs unless God is with him, then God is sanctioning what this Jesus is doing. And when Jesus opened his mouth, he made many claims, he taught many things. And now he's looking at the audience and saying, do you believe them? Do you believe what I taught? No. Do do, do you believe that the works I did was in the Father's name? Do you believe at least those who go on to say that a little bit later in chapter 10? No. His words and his works testify to who he is. He's the Messiah. There's something bigger going on here. Something spiritual going on. Beloved, the works of Christ did point. I I said it earlier, I said it many times before, and I'll say it again. The miracles themselves do not, do not in any way bring forth or elicit faith. They don't. They're meant to stop people in their tracks and say, hold on one moment. No one can do that unless God is with him. Nicodemus had the right, the right idea. No one can perform these miracles. No one can produce sight. No one can. Were the miracles not big enough? Was the invalid of 38 years not strong enough? Was the man who was born blind not good enough? How about if someone was brought up from the death? Well, that comes in the next chapter. Our friend Lazarus, right? Will they believe then? Actually, no. When he is brought up from death to life. They'll plot to kill both Jesus and the evidence. There's something spiritual going on and it's very, very dark. But the works, and many can, can claim to do miracles and wonders, but the ones that Jesus did in particular were prophesied in the Old Testament. 
and they were pointing towards the messianic king to come. So when you see these type of miracles, you are to know that this is Messiah. In the moment of weakness in John the Baptist, remember in Matthew chapter 11, he sends his disciples to Christ and he asks, in prison he is, are you the Christ? Or do we expect someone else? Jesus could have gone back and spoken to him plainly. He could have spoken to these Jews plainly, but Jesus knows their heart. It would make no difference. And he could have spoken to John the Baptist plainly. Tell the disciples, go back to John and say, yes, I am. But he doesn't need to. John's his real disciple. John is a real sheep. He hears the voice. So he says the same words and John gets it. He doesn't need to say beyond that. He sends the disciples of John back and he says, go and tell John that you hear, that, that what you hear and what you see. In other words, he's appealing to the same thing he's saying here to the Jews. Go tell John what you hear, what I've told you, and what you've seen, the works of God that I've performed. Go and tell him what you can see. That the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John knows the scripture. John hears the voice of the Savior. John is able to hear those voices. We don't know his response. But the fact that he is one of Jesus' own, Jesus commended John's ministry. No one born of a woman is greater than this man, John. He commended his ministry. He knows that he's one of his own. And he speaks to him tenderly in a way that he can understand. Go back and tell him what you see and what you've heard. My disciple will hear my voice. My sheep will hear my voice. My sheep will recognize my work. It has the handiwork of God. It has the fingerprint of God upon everything that I do. And in fact, if we think about the purpose statement of John itself, of the book of John itself, I haven't mentioned it for many, many, many months now, but you remember John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 is the purpose statement for which John has written this book. And he says there, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. He could have done more, but he did that many because that's the men, that's the amount that he was meant to do. Which are not written in this book, he says. But these are written, so in other words, on the inspiration of the Spirit of God, John only writes for us the seven signs, apart from the eighth, which is the resurrection. He's written in this book so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The signs will stop you in the track. You believe Jesus is the Son of God because the proclamations from his own mouth, the claims that he makes, his teachings and the apostles that are pointing to him, or the the prophets that are pointing to him. And the Son of God, uh, uh, terminology is John the Baptist that says to the people of Israel, this is the Son of God. God has not left his people without a witness. The Old Testament prophesied about the advent of Christ and what to expect when he comes. His words and his works testify plainly to who he is. But if you don't believe, it's not because there's not enough evidence. It's not because the miracles and the signs and the wonders weren't powerful enough. It wasn't because Jesus didn't have enough power of persuasion or he couldn't articulate his words. No one spoke like our Lord. If you don't believe, it's because you don't hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and you don't hear the voice of the Good Shepherd because you are not among his sheep. Brothers and sisters, this is a very scary reality. I don't know if you feel it, but this is a very, very terrifying reality. Mental intelligence, mental assent how much you know and well, how well you can read and how well you can articulate the grammar and the that will take you zero way forward if God hasn't moved, if God hasn't brought salvation to your soul, if you haven't been elected in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's more of that next week. We'll unpack that next week with the words that Jesus will say moving forward. Because there is an element there of human responsibility, of course. The mankind is culp- culpable for his sins. He's responsible. He pushes away Christ. He hates the light, loves the darkness because he loves his sin because his works are evil. There's a, there's a responsibility given to mankind. And on the day of judgment, the judgment will be final and it will be fair. But you have to also acknowledge the decree of God in salvation. And so we'll talk more about that next week. So I want to... 
I just want to bring this sermon to a close. And I want us to take our minds back to what I spent a bit of time earlier speaking to. Where are the Jews right now? Where is Jesus? They're in the, the precinct there in the temple. And the vibe is one of a buzz and joy and festivity. There's been eating, there's been drinking, there's been dancing, there's been harps and playing, there's been sacrifice. There's, there's been a lot, eight days of just bliss and celebration. Why? Well, because the temple was rededicated to Yahweh. It was desecrated, it was defiled. But God gave us deliverance and here we are, it's back among us. And that celebration in the temple is for that reason. Now the reason why I took you back in that short history of the people of Israel is because I want you to know that these people are the physical sons and daughters of Abraham. That history that I went through fairly quickly is their history. They were prized to that. They had the scripture and it was read to them, read to them maybe daily. And they heard it, they learnt it. And they tried to, to act according to what they thought scripture was telling them to do. And yet you have this festival and all this seemingly joy and, and celebration going on. And yet it could be one of the darkest places on the planet because the light of the world is nowhere to be seen in their hearts. How could someone be so religious? How can a group be so religious and practice meticulously the things that they think are according to the will of God yet not have life? It's because they're devoid of the substance of life. They're devoid of the one who is the light of life. They're devoid of Jesus Christ. They don't know him. This temple is, is so grand and glorious. It's the temple. It's the second temple, but it was enhanced by King Herod. So it's much bigger than what was built under Zerubbabel. And it's a glorious temple and it does have glory. Burnt in AD 70, but in this time it was a beautiful thing to look at. But beloved, Beloved, did God establish the, the bricks and the gold in the temple and the, and, the, and the holy place and the holy of holy and the courtyard? Were they simply so that they would marvel at the architecture? Or was there something bigger that he was trying to communicate? The temple is where God meets with man. The eternal God who's unapproachable, who lives in unapproachable light. The one who's holy, holy, holy. The one who you and I and every human being should perish before we even come into his presence. That he pleased God to actually make himself known, to presence, presence himself and to manifest his glory before his people. Not as an ends in itself, but in order to point towards. Remember last week I said that the Old Covenant, the Old Testament speaks prophetically. And Jesus gives us that hermeneutic that when we read the Old Covenant, it speaks to him. You search the scripture because in them you think there is eternal life. They speak of me, Jesus says to the Jews. Here we have a whole group of people who are all giddy about this huge structure that was saved. And yet the one who says, tear down the temple in three days, I'll rebuild it, stands before them and they have no regard for him. It's not as it seems, beloved. It's not as it seems. That joy and celebration truly in their heart is darkness. One day they will stand before the Lord, the one who's given all to execute all judgment, none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself. And when they stand before him, it won't be, but you didn't tell us plainly. Actually, in the words of our Lord himself, let me, let me tell you there in John chapter 12. He says in verse 47, Verse 44, let's start with verse 44. And Jesus <clears throat> cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Now hear this. The one who rejects me and does not receive my what? 
my words as a judge. Who's the judge? The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. The word that I have not spoken? The word that I have spoken. We'll give an account. Everyone here, the sound of my voice and listening online, have have heard his word and one day we will give an account. You cannot unhear it. You see a sign on the highway that says, can you unsee this or something along those lines. You're driving pretty quick, you can't see it. But he says, unsee this. You cannot unhear the word of Christ. Once proclaimed, it'll come back. It'll come back either to show you your guilt, your wretchedness, but also the one in whom you have trusted and the price that has been paid upon the cross of of Golgotha when he shed his when he shed his blood or his word will come back as a judge and judge but but you didn't say it plainly or oh, yes i did and his word is sufficient it must not be added to it must not be taken away from it stands where it stands and it stands with the absolute supreme authority of god Next week, we talk about the believer's assurance in Christ. That's why I've stopped here, an odd place, I know. But I wanted to speak this word that was placed upon my heart, and next week, by God's grace, the bliss of having him as our good shepherd and being in his hand, and yea, in the Father's hand, and no one can snatch us away. Let's pray.